if, if you don't know, some of you have asked, so I'll tell you kind of my yearly rhythm and schedule. I, I was gone for the last two weeks, and uh, every year I take two weeks and I go to California. Um, the first week I go to a conference, and my wife often comes with me. This year we actually had some friends come out with us, and they went to the conference with us. It's a conference on church leadership, and so every year I go out there, and it's so encouraging and refreshing. And then I send everybody home, and I take one week all alone, eight days this year, and as an extrovert, it's like a living nightmare, okay? So um, it takes like four days just to acclimate to not having people constantly surrounding me. I want to just throw a party every night, but there's no one to throw a party for, and so uh, it's eight days, and I walk beaches, I climb um, hills in the desert, if you will. They're like, to us, they're mountains, but to them, they're like hills, you know? And I just spend this time praying, praying for my family, for my soul, our church, you guys, the future. And uh, every year, this has been one of the most impactful times of my entire year. Like, it's, I'm not alone. Are our lives kind of just busy and things are going crazy all around us? And there's working kids in school and blah, 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 and this and that, and retirement and grandkids. The list goes on and on. But, there, but to, just to decompress, and it's like when I'm quiet, I can hear the Holy Spirit. And it was just a really meaningful, meaningful time away. And so I just want to say thank you for giving me that time. And my prayer is that as I go away and get recharged, that I could be able to shepherd my family and this church and you guys with the best of my ability. Um, I want to tell you the highlight of what happened to me out there. This is a true story. Um, California is a weird place. I don't know if you know that. Thank God for the Midwest. Um, so uh, the, I was with a friend at Starbucks before the conference, and uh, there's this dude sitting there. And uh, the dude is clearly been partying all night or something, right? And uh, so my friend and I are waiting for our coffee, and we strike up a conversation. I don't know what was said. Um, but I said something like, so how's your coffee? Are you drinking coffee? Here's what he says to me. This is gonna, he says, bro, I can do cocaine all day long. Can't touch coffee. Makes me too jittery. <laughs> and my buddy says, just right off the cuff says, hey man, you got to draw the line somewhere. Totally understand. And I'm thinking, I am... Send me home. Thank God for the Midwest. And uh, so lo and behold, uh, I think it was just about that time, there was a Donald Trump rally. So you can hit the next slide. And I thought, this is what's going on at home. Like, this, anybody familiar with what happened at the Donald Trump rally, by the way? Okay. Here's some pictures just to remind you. Um, like, I look at this and I'm like, I'm thinking, Chicago, for real? This is what we're doing? doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, by the way. I mean, this is... Uh, just sad, you know, and I'm watching this happen and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, do I want to go back home to Chicago? Um, what's better, the West Coast, the Midwest? I don't know. So I, I was reading the news and I saw one picture that I have not been able to get out of my brain. Uh, it might be my favorite picture so far of 2016. So I, I want to ask a question and then I have to explain something um, so that you understand what this picture means. What is the lowest form of disrespect a Chicagoan can dish out? So I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll show you the picture. Many years ago, Pastor Tim Andrus, one of our former pastors, he took me to Gene and Jude's hot dogs. I, being from Detroit, being like not familiar with the ins and outs of hot dogs, okay, and the rules in Chicago for hot dogs, with all innocence, I go to the counter, and I'm like, where's the ketchup? <laughs> And it's like, it's like the whole store just went quiet and silent like in that moment. And the guy looks at me in total seriousness and says, we don't serve ketchup here. And I'm like, I look at Tim, I'm like, who doesn't serve ketchup? It's a hot dog place. What's wrong with this place? And he's like, Michael, 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 Michael. Chicagoans 
don't eat ketchup on their hot dogs. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Like, ketchup is delicious. Like, so I, I mean, next time I go to Gene and Jude's, I'm taking little packets of ketchup, and I'm gonna just put it all over my hot dog, and me from Detroit, go Red Wings. Anyways, so I'm, I'm watching all these pictures on the Donald, Donald Trump rally, and this is what I see come up, and I have not been able to get this out of my mind. It says, Trump puts ketchup on his hot dog. Like, this is how we rebel against Donald Trump in Chicago. I was. I was sitting this morning, and I was, I was looking back over this keynote, and I, was, and I saw this picture, and I laughed out loud again. Like, I haven't been able to get this out of my brain. And uh, by the way, this has nothing to do with sexuality. This is just a, an objectively funny Chicagoan, Chicagoan rebelling against the Donald Trump rally. And, and if you look at the title of, of my sermon, uh, if you open up your notes, you'll see it. And the, the title of the sermon is, And You Thought Donald Was Controversial. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, no, is this going to be a political sermon? I don't know. We're going to find out. No, it's not going to be a political sermon. Don't worry. And some, some circumstances are so politically charged that they could just explode on a dime. And, and you know them when you're in them. Like, if you were at this rally, you would know that this is a scary event. You would know that a full-on brawl could have broken out at any moment. When you hear the testimonies of people who were at this rally, many of them were genuinely scared of what, of what could happen. Now, we celebrate today what days? This is... Palm Sunday. Don't worry, your palms will be ushered out to you in a little while. Uh, but Palm Sunday, you may not know this, was one of those politically charged instances. This was a pretty, I think for some people, um, this could have broken out into a huge brawl. Uh, most of us think of Palm Sunday, Jesus just flowing hair in a white robe, flowing in victorious. It's even called the triumphal entry, which to me is just kind of a funny title given what's actually happening in this passage. And, and so uh, in the weeks and months before this, um, it talks about, the book of Luke talks about Jesus' agenda. And here's what Luke 9.51 says. It says, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up. To be taken up means what? To be killed, right? He set his face toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, meaning this. He is on a mission to go to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus is going to start orchestrating events and his schedule to go to this city to be executed. This is a very purposeful thing for Jesus. So Jesus um, arrives about five days before Passover, and he finds a city which is normally uh, 25,000 to 40,000 people, one square mile, a few little towns outside of it, swelling to over 250,000 people. I mean, this place is jam-packed. And uh, the week before Passover, it's already politically volatile. And Jesus is going to come into this volatile environment, and he's just going to shake things up. He's going to pull a Donald Trump. And by the way, I'm not comparing Jesus to Donald Trump, so just relax if that's what you think. Okay. So let's talk about what we know about Palm Sunday. Number one, on a human level, uh, the Jews who are receiving Jesus, this is a moment of desperation for them. They are living under the Roman thumb. They are not free. They want freedom from Rome. They are being taxed out of their mind. They're being oppressed. They're being put aside, and they're seen as irrelevant. And they want a king and a kingdom. They want their Messiah. They want freedom. That is what they want. So on a human level, um, the Jews are a desperate group of people. On a political level, this is seen as a rebellion in the making by the Jewish leaders. I mean, the Jewish leaders are watching this event happen, and they're afraid of full-out rebellion. Military rebellion is about to happen. On a military level, this is an invitation from the Jews to be their political leader, to be their military leader, to fight for them, to build an army, not a spiritual army, but a very physical army that will take Rome down. On a religious level, this is going to be the fulfillment of multiple prophecies. 
And at a divine level, this is a well-orchestrated plan by Jesus to purposely incite the Jews and the Romans to execute him. If you read the story of the crucifixion of Jesus and you see him as a victim, you have missed the fundamental point of the story. He is not a victim. He is orchestrating events on purpose to get himself killed. Why? So that he could bear the full weight of our sins on his shoulders. So here's the question for you as we get into this text. You're going to see a number of characters emerge. I want to ask you this. Which of the characters do you most identify with in this story? So here are the main players. Number one, the mastermind, Jesus. Don't say you identify with Jesus, okay? Let's go with the other four. All right. Number two, the confused disciples. You're going to see, right? The disciples, they, they don't really have a clue what's going on. Uh, number three, the hurting crowd. And number four, the angry religious. And number five, the desperate least. And this is just the question I want you to ask. Who are you identifying in this? Because every one of these people are going to interact with Jesus in a different way with a different perspective on him. So let's watch. You open up your notes. Point number one, we see fulfilled promises. And let's watch these tensions rise. First one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, he came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is this mountain right outside of Jerusalem, looks over Jerusalem. And if you're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and guess what was on the Mount of Olives? Olive trees, good. And so he's sitting in the Mount of Olives, and he looks over. He can see the wall surrounding Jerusalem. He sees um, probably over 100,000 people at this point. It's early in the week. People are still arriving. He sees the fortress of Antonia, which, which is this fortress, which is a reminder to all of the Jewish people that hovers over the temple and reminds them that we own you. We're in control of you. We oversee your God. Your God doesn't oversee us. Probably sees Roman soldiers marching in and out through this and that and people everywhere and, and people selling and, and animals being sold because Passover is about to happen. And so he sees all the hustle and the bustle. And Jesus sent two disciples. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you. And the village is Bethphage. And immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone sees you and anyone uh, says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Okay, try this. Okay, just go, go to a car, okay, which is functionally what a donkey is for people nowadays. Okay, go to a car, right, go into it, start driving away. If anybody says, oh, Jesus needs it, and see what they're going to say to you. It's not going to go well for you, that I promise. This would never fly at all nowadays. But the book of John actually gives us an insight into how the disciples are perceiving this. So we read this often, and we think, because the disciples later knew what all this meant, we think they knew what it meant then. And the disciples had no idea what was happening. They're like, go get a, a colt, steal it, and bring it to me. And if anybody asks you, it's going to be fine. John 12, 16 says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So do the disciples understand what's happening in these series of events? The answer is no. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. We're going to get to the symbolism of a donkey, but here's what the author wants you to know. This was not a prophecy that Jesus was like, Oh, I'm riding on a donkey. Look, I just fulfilled a prophecy, right? There are some prophecies that happen to Jesus, and then there are some prophecies that Jesus makes happen. Jesus is orchestrating this event. Jesus tells them to get a donkey because hundreds of years ago in the book of Zechariah, there was a prophecy that the Messiah would come on a donkey through the gates of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is like, it's the last week of my life. 
I'm the Messiah. Let's go get a donkey and let's make this thing happen, right? So here's what you need to get. The author's trying to tell you something. This was not an accidental fulfillment. This was a purposeful orchestration by Jesus so that everybody, when they look back on this, would say, wow, he was declaring to all of us, I am not just going to be a dead guy in the ground. I am God in the flesh, the Savior of this people. Jesus had no confusion about who he was. He understood that he was fully God. Verse 6, the disciples went and they did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put them on their cloaks and he, Jesus, sat on them. I want to read you the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 that this comes from. And I want you to hear some of the context and the energy surrounding this original prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Now what kind of salvation did the Jewish people this time want? Salvation from circumstances. Less of Rome, more of my freedom, more autonomy, more power, more authority, worldwide empire, king in Jerusalem, that's what they wanted. Okay? And God is thinking something completely different at the end of the day, but here's what he says. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10 says this. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Can you see why the Jewish people were so excited for this Messiah to come strolling through the gates of Jerusalem on a donkey in light of this promise that was made to him? That the man who does this will end war in Jerusalem. Now, this is the context you have to understand about what's going on. They are desperate. They want the battles to end. They want their people to stop being oppressed and slaughtered. They want to be the people that God has always promised them you're going to be. You're going to be victorious. That's what they wanted now. Number two in your notes, inciting symbols. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, why was the crowd here? Like, this is a fair question. Jesus is coming on a donkey. Like, did they just pop up? Did they see Jesus? And they all scattered together. The book of John tells us, and it says this, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Here's what they know. This man raises people from the dead. This man is surely sent by God. So the crowds are following Jesus. As Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, crowds are forming around him, and Jesus is orchestrating this prophecy. He comes in, and they're like, this is our moment. Okay? And so the first sign here, the first symbol we're going to see is a donkey. And the donkey symbolized humility. He was a humble animal. Horses symbolize what? War and authority. Donkeys symbolize humility and peace. And the same people who shout Hosanna to this king are going to shout crucify him, crucify him in just five days. Okay? And what they don't realize is that Jesus truly did come to bring them peace, but they completely misunderstood it because all they really wanted was freedom from their current circumstances. Their current circumstances blinded them to their greatest actual need. And so Jesus rides in a donkey for three reasons. Number one, to fulfill a prophecy. Number two, when you hear this, to rile up the people. Does Jesus want the people all stirred up? The answer is yes. And number three, to anger the Jewish leaders. 
Jesus loves to incite Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. He loves to rile them up. And the reason he's doing it at this time is why. He is orchestrating a perfect trifecta, a perfect storm, where they will come together and they will finally execute him. The second symbol that we see are cloaks. And the cloak is a symbol of submission to a king or an emperor. Now, it's just a cloak when you're wearing it, but when a king walks in, you put your cloak on the ground, and as people walk over, it's a sign, you're our king, you're our ruler, you're our leader, we submit to you. Can you understand why Roman authorities watching this could see Jesus as a threat? Like, does that make sense, how the political tensions are rising here? Now, the Jewish leaders, did they see Jesus as a threat? Absolutely. And the people are functionally saying this, Jesus is our new leader. We want Jesus to be our military leader, our king, our emperor, our messiah, and everybody's getting up in arms. Now we have the palms, and this is why we call it Palm Sunday. Palms are a symbol of rebellion, triumph, and victory. The palms are nothing less than a heated cultural symbol. If I could give one word, here's what the palm symbolized. Freedom. Isn't that from a movie, by the way? I can't remember. Freedom. I, can't, I literally can't remember. What is it? Is it Braveheart? Duh. Okay. Yeah. Freedom. Yeah. That's what it symbolizes. It was a Jewish symbol of nationalism. This was a very unique and special symbol to the Jewish people. I mean, historically amongst the Jewish people, it had different meanings in different seasons and times. But at this time, this became a, a, a symbol for freedom. I want to give you an analogy that I think could best help us understand this. It's sort of like the American flag but in a different kind of context. I want you to imagine our dark, scary neighbors to the north finally fulfill the plot that they have been cooing for years. And they come in, and they have had spies all throughout, and we all thought they were passive and nice. Oh, no, this is a multi-century rebellion the Canadians have been putting on for a long time. And the Canadians all at once, their coup goes off at once, and now they overtake us, and they rise the Canadian flag everywhere and burn American flags all over the country, right? Can you see it, right? Are we on the same page here? Okay, good. Uh, and so I want you to imagine, right, there are these little pockets of Americans who are like, they, they keep putting up their American flag, right? And, and then every time somebody's found with an American flag, they're shot and executed, okay? And I want you to imagine that the palm branches were like that kind of an emotional sentimentalism, this patriotic thing, like freedom, and that's what the palm branches sort of were like for them. And so when the, when the Romans saw the palm branches, they knew that this was a symbol of something far more tense and hostile than just a, yay, he's our king, Hosanna. This is a politically charged event, and something bad is going to happen if they're not very, very careful. And so the palms to the disciples um, were, honestly, I think pretty confusing in the moment. Like they're like, well, we kind of know he's not going to be a military leader, but we also want him to be. That would be great. To the, to the crowd, the palms became a symbol of revolution. To the religious, these were the symbol of a naive rebellion. And to the Romans, this was a symbol that threatened the empire. Um, even on Jewish paraphernalia and coins, we see palms, um, and this is a sign of their independence and their freedom. So you can see now why when we say Palm Sunday is like this heated event, you can see how all of these forces emerge from the Romans to the Jewish leaders to the actual people to oppression. I mean, this is just waiting to explode. And so number three, flaring emotions in your notes. And the crowds that went before him and that were following him, shouting, this word is done on purpose so that you know this isn't just like a chance. They are in a frenzy. And here's what they're saying. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so like, what I've learned with us is that we say these words like amen. We actually don't know what it means. Hosanna, we don't know what it means. We just say it because it's like what Christians say. Here's what Hosanna means. It means save us. Save us now. 
It's, it's a plea of immediacy. My current dilemma is so bad that I need Hosanna. I need divine intervention in my life right now. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. That moment when you trusted Jesus for the first time and you realized that God was flesh in Jesus and you professed faith. You said, I'm a sinner, save me. That was your moment of Hosanna. That was, this is bad enough that I need intervention right now. Hosanna to the son of David. Now this is what everybody heard. You are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited king. You are the one who will trample Rome, exalt Israel, and reign from Jerusalem forever and ever, ever, and usher in worldwide peace on behalf of God, and all of God's enemies will be trampled underneath your feet. That is what this means. So when they shout out, son of David, they are making a huge political, military, economic um, uh, declaration here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This man is from God. Hosanna in the highest. Save us to the uttermost. Blot out our enemies. Wipe them from the earth. Take our freedom back. Create the nation and the empire built on God's law that God has promised for so long. I want you to notice their desperation. There are probably hundreds or thousands all around Jesus at that point, either shouting or observing. I want you to notice that this is not adoration. This is a plea. We use this as adoration. They were pleading to Jesus to save them. And I want you to notice their implied discontent with their current religious and political leadership. They want something new. How do you imagine Jesus responded? This, this story is in all four of the Gospels, and they tell different parts of the story in different places. So I want to read to you from Luke's account what happens immediately after he gets through the crowd. Listen to this, Luke 19, 39. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. I mean, you have to stop. I just want to say this. When Jesus weeps over something, you have to stop, and you have to watch, and you have to listen. What so breaks the Son of God that he sheds tears? And here's what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You want peace, you want freedom, you want all this stuff. You have no idea what you're asking for. You want war? Here's what's going to happen with war. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. You want war? Here's your future. And they will tear you down to the ground. I want you to just listen to the literal words of what he says. You and your children, where are they? Within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. The temple is what he's saying. It's going to be completely obliterated because you did not know the time of your visitation. You can see why Jesus would weep. These are his people. Uh, he loves the Jews. He loves Jerusalem. And in AD 70, Rome comes in and they obliterate the city and they murder tens of thousands. And this prophecy came true. And Jesus is broken because he's like, you're missing the entire point. I've come to bring peace, yes. I will usher in a perfect kingdom that reigns with righteousness and justice over the entire world. It's going to happen. I promise you that. But before that day comes, 
you have an infinitely greater problem than Rome, and that is you and God are separated by your sin. And if that sin is not decisively dealt with once and for all, you will never be able to stand before a holy God. Jesus understands because he came to seek and to save the what? The lost, which is every single human being on the planet. And so Jesus understands something. You have completely missed your point. And so his emotions, they're flaring. Verse 10, we go back to Matthew. It says this, And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? I mean, the frenzy, everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And then I love what Jesus does. I mean, you'd think that he would go make some political statement or whatnot. You know, he'd have a rally. He doesn't. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. At this point, when you see somebody with leprosy healed in front of your eyes, when you see limbs grow back, when you see the dead raised to life, wouldn't common sense tell you this isn't any normal human being, right? When somebody can do the miracles on a dime that this guy can do, like, shouldn't you go up to him and be like, hey, I could use you at the hospital. <laughs> hey, like, let's tell more people about you because whatever you are, you're pretty great. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, I love this, and the children crying out in the temple, save us, son of David. And you hear the cry of even children here. What were the Sadducees or what were the scribes and Pharisees? The chief priests, they were indignant, livid, really, really angry. And they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, yep. <laughs> And I love this, because Jesus takes the Bible, he throws it back in their face, like they know, they know the Bible, okay? So he's just going to quote it back for them, and he says, have you never read, silly little scribes, come on, you're so smart, you write the Bible for a living, you know? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And they're like, did you, did you, did you just declare that they're worshiping you and this is from God? Are you declaring to us that you're, you're God? In Luke 19, there's another conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, so they're shouting, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, look, look I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Like, you cannot stop worship to God. Okay? It's going to happen whether you like it or not. And if you shut these up, all of creation will start moaning and groaning and worship for me. You can't stop this. And you would think after he heals the lame and the blind, like this person that you've known your whole life, they're blind as a bat. Like they don't know anything, colors or anything. And Jesus gives them 20-20 vision in a moment and they go off running. You would think in this moment, you would say, he's awesome, right? But their hearts were so Hard And this is so sad. I mean, Jesus can be right in front of you. He can be doing powerful things. Somebody that you love can have their life radically transformed in front of your face, and you're like, nope, not real. Nope, can't handle it. Nope, I don't believe anything. Nope, I reject him completely. He could perform a miracle in front of you, and your heart might still be hard. It's amazing. And this is really the human condition. Now, why are they so concerned? The Pharisees are concerned because they're afraid of Rome. That's it. They're afraid of Rome. Listen to what John says about them. Uh, the Pharisees say this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid they're going to lose their job. They're afraid they're going to lose their position. They're afraid they're going to lose their lives. I mean, Jesus is a threat to everything that they know. He's a threat. And you can see why they're concerned about him. 
So it doesn't stop here. I mean, the ruckus just keeps going. Remember I told you that Jesus was on a mission this week to die? So I'm just going to give you like a cursory overview of the events that happened up through Good Friday. Um, next, he goes, he debates with the scribes, elders, and leaders, communicating to them that he has authority, not them. By the way, if you're the religious authorities of the day and some dude says you have no authority, that's pretty offensive. He taught the people parables, calling the Jewish rel religious leaders evil in front of them publicly exposed the evil deeds of the scribes, the secret practices that they had, he was publicly exposing. Publicly debated with and embarrassed the Sadducees over the resurrection, angering them intensely and humiliating them publicly. Publicly rebuked, silenced, and embarrassed the Pharisees, gave seven damning woes to the scribes and Pharisees, and again exposed their private evil deeds publicly. He publicly rebuked the rich for their meager offerings in the temple. Like, I'm just going to go after everybody. I'm going to go after the leaders and Rome and the rich, and he's just going after everybody. He foretells the near destruction of the temple, communicating this, that God's presence is leaving the people of Israel. He foretells the near destruction of Jerusalem, God's holy city, communicating God is not just leaving, he is rejecting the people of Israel. He foretells the Messiah is coming and will judge the leadership of Israel as guilty and condemned. I mean, this is not a guy who's all like, let's just all keep the peace. Let's all just be cool, calm, and collected, right? What is his mission? To die. If you miss that, you will miss the bigger picture of why he does every single thing he does. After all this, in Matthew 26, here's what Matthew says. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, you do know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered out to be crucified. Like You're aware, by the way, that I'm going to die, Correct? They seem to miss this, but Matthew does not record their response immediately. He tells you in the very next verse what's happening behind the scenes at this time. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Mission accomplished. They will have a dead Jesus. They will have a dead Jesus. And they will do whatever it takes to get them a dead Jesus. But what they don't realize is that's exactly what Jesus wants. Because Jesus is on a mission to die in our place for our sins. And he told his disciples this. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again on the third day. I want to come back to my question for you. Who do you most identify with in this story? The confused disciples. God, what are you doing? Do you ever just look around at your life and the circumstances around you and you just say, I don't get it. I don't get why you're doing this. I don't get why you're making everybody mad, Jesus. I don't get why you are not coming and defending yourself. I don't get why you're not revealing the fullness of who you are. I don't get why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, do any of you just look at Jesus and you're like, what are you up to? Like, how in this world does this political, like, environment happen in America, right? Anybody ever wonder that? Like, what's going on here? What's happening in my family? What's happening in our nation? What's happening all around the world? How is ISIS doing that? And people are dying and getting massacred and this and that. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? I think I, I read this, and I, more often than anybody else, I just, I just identify here with the disciples. Jesus confuses me. Some of you, I think, might be able to relate with the hurting crowd. Jesus, fix my problems, or I'll find somebody else who can Jesus, fix my problems, or I will find somebody else who can. You may identify with the crowd if you want Jesus for what he can give you, and as soon as he doesn't provide in your way or your time, you're done. 
Some of you may identify with the angry religious. Jesus, you're a threat to my status quo and my standard of living. Some of you know that if you take Jesus seriously, he will turn your entire life upside down so you keep him at a distance. And you get angry at him and you make excuses by finding things he says that you know don't mean what you were trying to make them mean because if you had to deal with who he really was, that would be far too difficult for you because he demands everything. And right now you're not ready to give him everything. And how do you justify that? You get angry at him. If God was good, he would. Well, the Bible does this. The Bible contradicts itself. You find these reasons so you can push them away and not have to deal with them. Finally, number four is the desperate least. Jesus is my only hope. I have nothing left. If you don't heal me, I have nothing. I think some of you may be in this place today where you just say, I have, I have nothing. I'm a sinner. My life is in shambles. I have rebelled. Those I love have rebelled. If you don't heal me from the inside out, I've got nothing. I don't know where you're at. I don't know which person you are. All I know is that Jesus beckons every single person, no matter where you're at, to come to him and trust him. And if you're angry and you're pushing him away, he says, stop it. Stop it. Don't be a belligerent teenager. No one has ever loved you more than I have. And if you're hurt, he says, I offer you healing and eternal life right now. It begins. Let's figure this thing out. If you're absolutely confused, here's what he'll say to you. I'll probably be confusing until you die. (laughs) Follow me. I work all things out for good. It doesn't matter where you're at in this. I mean, Jesus beckons all people. And on Palm Sunday, we're going to wave palms in a little bit. And we'll all have different reasons for why we wave these palms. But at the end of the day, this is what we need to do. We need to sit here and say, God, save us. Save us. For me, Palm Sunday is one of my favorite days because I get to wave this and I get to say this in my heart. Every time I sing Hosanna, what I'm saying in my heart is thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing me to my knees, showing me that I have nothing apart from Jesus. And I know this is the cry of so many people's heart in this room. He has saved you. And the reason Hosanna is now a praise, is now a statement of worship, is because God has done a miracle in your life. He has saved you and he has given you spiritual resurrection from the dead. And one day when you die, he will give you a physical resurrection. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for saving us in the highest to the uttermost from our greatest enemy, which is the wrath of God, sin, Satan, and death. And he has resolved every one of our enemies for us through the cross.